When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Athletic. The race is on, and so dominant have Red Bull and Verstappen become that they have almost become footnotes in our Race Review podcast recently, so it's time to dig a little deeper into the reasons for their supremacy and ask who is best placed to take them on. I'm Ed Straw, and joining us to discuss all things Red Bull are Ben Anderson and Mark Hughes. Well, Ben, obviously you've uh, you've covered the period when Red Bull were doing a lot of not winning and hoping to get there. Now it's the uh, the more extreme end of the of the schedule. Myself and Mark have, uh, have sort of gone in and out of that uh, over the years, but uh, I guess it, it is very very easy in principle, isn't it, to overlook a dominant force like this, which is why it's sometimes important to actually get into why they're doing so well rather than framing it as why others are doing so badly. Yeah, they've become everything they hated, haven't they? Uh, you know, lobbing bricks at Mercedes all the while they were dominating and now they're back in that position themselves. I think the reason we don't talk about them so much is just the the frenzied nature of the battle right behind them. There are so many teams up and down trying to be second best at the moment that that naturally distracts you. And of course, Verstappen has hit this kind of Schumacher-esque formula of qualifying on pole and just controlling the race from the front and winning easily so that's quite boring to talk about isn't it usually yeah well that's the problem we always give mark when we ask him how the race was won and it's normally just <laughs> well Verstappen started at the front and was just a lot quicker and Red Bull executed better so that's kind of been the story of the season but mark there is always a lot more to this isn't it it can almost seem too easy but it, it's not easy to get there and stay there which is why it is important to I guess every now and again tip of the have a tip of the hat to a team like Red Bull and a driver like Verstappen yeah, there have been a couple of races at least this year that would have been very easy to lose. That were, were you know, the car's still the fastest, but it, 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 a couple of places where it, that performance was very difficult to access and really needed the driver and team to really um, grasp it fully and, and uh, to deliver. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the, the, the basic root of the performance superiority is, is uh, stitched in, but um, it varies in how easy it is to access from place to place and you know conditions to conditions and Sergio Perez has been the perfect counterpoint to that with his qualifying struggles of late showing it's not just turn up and win there's a lot more to it than that but Mark let's start off with looking at the car because is it possible to quantify the advantage of the Red Bull other than by sheer weight of wins and what is it that makes the RB19 so consistently good compared to the opposition well other than having won every race this year literally 10 out of 10 uh, it, 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 it's its margin of superiority on race day which has stood out it, its qualifying advantage is usually quite small and a couple of times wasn't there at all but on race day it's just gone the car's just gone leaves everyone behind obviously and seven seven tenths per lap um, on the best of the opposition as an average and that's, that's pretty huge um, what makes it so good is its outstanding aero efficiency and that's quite measurable when you look at at the GPS traces, there are corners where, say, an Aston Martin or a Mercedes can be just as fast or faster even, but in order to do it, can't be anything like as fast on the straights. And if they set it up to be comparably fast on the straights to the Red Bull, then they can't achieve the Red Bull's cornering speed. So that's that's clearly aero efficiency. But it's what at the core of that aero efficiency, which um, it, that, that that's the intriguing bit, and that would just seem to be a much more sophisticated understanding of the nuances of ground effect aerodynamics and the others and this it was apparent even last year when Perez's RB18 you know when, when he crashed at Portier was craned away and we got we all got to see the underfloor for the first time and it was completely different to everyone else's which in the main were very simple with the two low roof tunnels running either side of a sort of teardrop or canoe shaped central flat floor the Red Bulls weren't like that at all the roof was higher and more arched the central flat floor section had distinct linear changes in its profile, clearly designed to change the tunnel volume along its length in a disruptive way at critical points. Now, the textbook Venturi shape 
to give you maximum downforce would look much more like those of the others than the Red Bull, like with a low ceiling to accelerate the air to maximum effect as it rushes into the diffuser throat, the little gap between the floor and the throat of the diffuser. But it turns out that was a simplistic way to think of it. What even last year showed, and the underfloor this year's Red Bull is even more complex, but what last year showed is that the, the simple low roof tunnel of the others comes up against the very hard limit of either stalling or bouncing as the floor is pushed into the ground by the downforce at higher speeds. So the, the ride height is, of course, lower at high speeds as the downforce is pushing it down on the suspension and higher at low speeds as the downforce is far less. To keep it away from that threshold where it stalls or bounces in the conventional floors, you have to increase the static ride height, i.e. the ride height as it sits stationary in the pit lane, which, of course, loses your downforce and lower speeds where the car could easily handle a lower ride height just to keep it away from the bouncing threshold at, at the higher speeds. And what it also does in your attempt at running it as low as you can get away with is it forces you to run the suspension very stiff to limit the floor height change with speed. But if you look at it from the other side of the telescope, as it were, and design around how far the tunnel roof will actually be from the ground, with your high tunnel roof, you can run it with the help of a nice, soft, long-travel suspension with a nice, high, static ride height which compresses right the way down as low as anyone else's at low speed and lower than the others at high speed because your suspension is not so stiff that you're induced in bouncing. So it's the height of the tunnel roof from the ground in action, which is the critical determinant of performance, not the static height of the tunnel roof from the ground. So then you don't need to limit the floor height changes. And if your dynamic ride height is more flexible with your suspension tunnel combination, you're going to be quicker everywhere. Now, we can add into that another couple of key features. It's got extreme anti-dive and anti-squat suspension. And so with less pitch and less dive to allow for, you can run it even lower. And regarding how big a boost they get from DRS, which is bigger than, than the others, that's partly explained by having an underflow which generates more downforce and, the, and therefore drag. And so you're dumping more drag anyway than the others if you can stall the whole underflow when you use DRS because there's more drag being created there. Then when you look at how they've configured the very aggressive lower beam wing and combine it with a double kick in the ramp of the diffuser, it looks like they may have a very effective way of stalling that underbody when DRS is used. Air generally doesn't like going around corners, but it will stay attached to a surface in, in which the angle changes if there is enough energy to keep it pinned. So without the DRS, just a normal running, it will probably stay attached to that secondary curve as the, the, the pressures behind it from the beam wing and the, the, the upper wing are, are inducing it to, to stay attached. So that'll create a good downforce. But if you then neutralize the main wing with DRS, then in a sort of cascading series, the lower pressure of the wing underside is no longer pulling on the beam wing. And as that stalls, then maybe that airflow can no longer stay attached to that secondary curvature in the diffuser because it's not being drawn on as hard from the pressure changes behind. And with the diffuser no longer working, the whole underflow will effectively stall and the air will just run straight through it. That's all speculation based upon the very different geometry of the Red Bull, but it all kind of adds up. Um, so, yeah, sorry for the long answer, but you did ask. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a complicated question, so it deserves a long answer. Yeah, it's a fascinating answer. Um, I think the simple way to summarise that long answer is Adrian Newey, isn't it? Uh, particularly... Uh, and Mark and I were talking about this actually a few days ago, his decision to work on the suspension of the Red Bull when the new rules came out. And they are, to use Mark's word, enjoy a cascade of benefits from that decision and division of labour that persists now. The raceability of the Red Bull, I think, has been present even from the start of 2022 when the car was you know, a bit late, a bit heavy because of the battle they had the season before with Mercedes. And Ferrari were obviously quicker in qualifying, but you could see Max was quicker in the races and he beat Leclerc a couple of times when he didn't have the fastest car. And then as they got the weight off and improved their own car and their own understanding of what they'd built, he's been unstoppable from pretty much the middle or even before the middle of last season to now. And you could see even last season from some of the lines he was taking at certain tracks, how he was able to ride the curbs more aggressively than even the good cars you know, Leclerc had that spin, didn't he, at Imola when he was chasing Perez, going, getting too much curb, um, kicking him into a into a spin. And 
the Ferrari looked at the start of 22 actually like one of the better cars over the curbs. And maybe this was something to do with how they were able to run their car before the floor height rules changed mid-season. But the Red Bull looked equally as good, I would say, and has got better. And going into this year, looks far better, even from the TV pictures, over the curbs than any other car. And that allows Verstappen to take shorter lines around most of the corners than anyone else. And therefore... Um, go quicker than most people even in marginal situations and he has to work a lot harder in qualifying than uh, the race because of the that bias that I think has been inherent to the car since the start of 22 but more often than not he's still able to pull pole positions out of the bag even marginal ones and he seems to be in a position now where he's getting to Q3 pretty much every race with an extra set of tyres as well so he he's got a banker at the start of Q3 that others don't have on new tyres and then is just able to find that extra bit of time uh, on the second run that uh, that almost protects pole position from any threat. Yeah, we've had extreme cases like Barcelona where Verstappen was able to abort an even quicker lap on the second run in Q3 because everybody else had already completed and weren't going weren't gonna to beat him. But I, I think the thing that I really like about this car is it's, in terms of that age and newy, vision it's that capacity to look at it completely three-dimensionally and not get overly focused on one thing or another but it's like you've got a car that's suspension geometry wise it's it keeps it relatively stable and can hold it in a certain window but within that you then use the compliance to give a car that actually gives you that suspension travel that you need that can deal with other challenges it's not getting fixated on one thing or the other and I always think with Newey I've, I've said it before he's very very good at sort of this uh this sort of calculus of working out all those different factors rather than just focusing on oh we can make a floor produce all of this downforce and performance in this window which is what sucks in teams like uh, like Mercedes and, and I think it's it's always reductive just to point to one person but that that I guess Mark is what Adrian Newey brings isn't it that that kind of all-round conceptual vision that can feed into the wider machine because he's not the one who's drawing all the detailed work and everything he's not doing that with, with Red Bull that's part of the wider machine but just having that step back and saying right actually these are these are the key levels you need to set all the dials at to get something that globally works very well. Yeah, he's got like a very good intuitive feel of the weighting of all the different performance factors. I think that's probably the best way of looking at it. And he will have a sort of shrewd, sort of, you know, first first level of understanding of that. And we'll be able to guide people to go off and research down those paths and see what comes back. He's not someone that says, right, we're doing this, we're doing that. He, he, he doesn't work like that. He's, he's not a dictator at all. But he has... He has as I say, this very good intuitive understanding of where the performance might be in any given set of regulations and what the different weightings are of everything and how you balance all that out. And that's that that's where his big picture um, really delivers lap time, that big picture understanding. And going back to your original question, Ed, about how good is the Red Bull and why, beyond those things we've discussed, I think they've also built in an early advantage under the regs that they now can ride out to an extent the penalty of the aerodynamic testing restrictions and the additional penalty from the cost cap breach in 21. They are developing, but they're not throwing parts at the car because they know they've got an inherently well-conceived, well-rounded, put-together package. Whereas everyone else seems to be chucking big steps at the car, darts at the wall, trying to, to fix their problems. So they just benefit from that as the races roll by. I think the the less understeery biased, if I can say, tyre construction of this year compared to last year will probably aid them because they were trying to go in that direction with the car last year. And Verstappen also will benefit from that balance, I think. And then also you've got to factor in the Honda legacy. You know, Honda developed really hard on the engine front. Um, obviously, there's stability in the engine regs now until 26, but Honda aren't deficient to anyone in the power unit stakes now Mercedes have kind of lost I think their preeminence there so that that aids Red Bull further especially in terms of overall efficiency because they they don't have to make up for a power deficit anymore they can have a certain amount of so-called dirty downforce if you like and take a drag penalty and the last factor I would say is you know an obvious one it's Max Verstappen you know he's the one who's extracting the maximum from that car every weekend and We've seen it before, even with Red Bulls and in the Vettel and Weber days, 
it's not enough to just have the best car. You still need the right driver to be able to extract that performance from it weekend after weekend. Well, that's kind of the other facet of the the domination. They've won 27 out of 32 races, Grand Prix-wise, disregarding the sprint since the start of last year. And Verstappen's won six in a row. So it is important not just to factor in Verstappen's contribution himself, but also just the team's execution and not dropping the ball. How do you think this compares to, say, Mercedes in its most dominant periods in terms of that dependability and execution? Um, I think it's slightly different in the sense that, and this mainly focused on Perez, because he's not really anywhere close to Verstappen's level, certainly on not enough of a range of circuits to be a factor in the title race when they're dominant, like they are this year. It, it's less pressure on the team. You know, they're not having to manage the kind of dynamic that Hamilton and Rosberg created at Mercedes. They're not having, there's been a few flashpoints we know, obviously, with the kind of alleged Monaco Q3 deliberate crash and some internal ructions, but they're not two drivers who've been colliding with each other. They're not costing the team points with several flashpoints and going against certain decrees about how you race and manage your races. And also, because of the maturity of the regulations, um, then Red Bull just aren't having the same reliability problems that Mercedes still had in the the early part of the hybrid era. Yes, they had a huge engine advantage, but they they still had random failures. You know, think of the 2014 Canadian Grand Prix where the the energy recovery system brake by wire system, I think, broke on both cars and Rosberg limped home. Hamilton was out, and that allowed Daniel Ricciardo to win his win a Grand Prix for the first time under this set of rules and the maturity of the engine regulations and where Red Bull are, you know, their position. There's been question marks about the drive shafts and a few things that have let Verstappen down at points, but overall they're much more solid than the cars were at the start of the hybrid era. So I think execution-wise, Red Bull have always been a very strong team thinking on their feet strategically. They were very good at putting Mercedes under pressure. I think Mercedes were relatively weak in that regard and would often... Uh, kind of get hamstrung by the teams behind them strategically. Red Bull don't suffer from that. They're quite good at being aggressive and taking the risks. But at the moment, they don't really need to. You know, Red Bull and Verstappen are doing what they did in the peak Vettel era, qualifying on pole, controlling the race from the front, just managing managing things carefully. And, And going back even into 2022, Mark's mentioned a couple of times where it'd be interesting to get his perspective. Uh, a couple of times where... They've been close to not getting pole position or it's been marginal based on you know conditions and particular performances. But I can't really think overall of a race apart from Brazil last season, going right back to Austria 2022, where they've really been second best. They've just, they've just been on top every weekend and it's been about just Verstappen particularly executing to the best of his ability. Yeah, I mean, it's... Um, Brazil has struggled. They got... They got caught out by having gone the wrong way with their baseline set up and it being a sprint weekend so they didn't get a chance to sort of reverse out of it. Um, and Monaco, it's it, it's a circuit where you really, really need that front tyre temperature, which it's a little bit reluctant to generate because of its anti-dive suspension. And so, you know, you had Fernando on fire and the Aston Martin really had to, um, you know, decode the uh, the challenge to to take that pole and then Max really had to deliver in that last sector. Um, so, but yeah, they they are just they they're just uh, a class above everything else, um, and on doing it with a big uh, power advantage, which is um, was for not all of Mercedes's domination, but for for much of it, it, it was, and um, yeah. The, the point about the drivers is absolutely spot on. Red, Red Bull have not got a, a support driver of the calibre of Nico Rosberg, have they? So, um, interestingly, they did have when the car wasn't um, as a, a winning car, when, when they had Daniel Ricciardo there. But, uh, yeah, it would have been interesting to see how this era would have um, <laughs> turned out had, had Daniel stayed all that time. That's a fascinating question, actually, isn't it? Because... He he left Red Bull not when he wasn't quite at his peak. Like it was quite clear which direction the team was going in. That Verstappen was kind of asserting his authority, and I think even the Ricardo family might accept that Daniel wasn't quite at the absolute 
elite level. He was like, a, if you want to have number ones and twos, he was like a one and a half or somewhere between a one and a one and a half, certainly by that that stage. And then he was very strong in those midfield Renaults and decent enough at certain times in the first year of McLaren. But under these rules, got absolutely destroyed by Lando Norris. So you wonder in an alternate reality where he stays at Red Bull and just you know grins and bears the fact that Max is the dominant force and the one who's calling the shots contractually and everything else would he have got to 2022 and this version of the Red Bull and just come unstuck in some way similar but maybe not quite as as obvious as it was at McLaren or would he not have learned any bad habits or lost his way and would actually he have been a uh, a much closer match for Max I'm not sure that he'd be able to beat him but I I could imagine that he might they might be a little bit more dominant in that version of the world where he stays stays in the seat he's now trying to get back I think that's certainly the case he'd have had the continuity and I think yeah he wouldn't he certainly wouldn't have gone into I don't think a McLaren certainly not McLaren 22 style uh, trough but we were already seeing it in 2018 that just Verstappen had that little bit of a uh, of an edge but I think he'd have been a very very good second driver for them to have certainly we've done a better job than Perez. It's a weird car to drive though. No, I think again, Mark might have an interesting perspective on this because he, you've talked about a lot of the specific features that might make that car so quick, but there's a consequence to things like, as I understand it, the anti-dive suspension in terms of, you know, braking performance. And that's going to translate to how the driver feels when he's behind the wheel. Surely some of what Perez is experiencing and Perez is not a bad Grand Prix driver. You know, he's, He's a race winner, um, compared very well against Nico Hulkenberg at Force India. Hulkenberg's having something of a renaissance under these rules at Haas. But there must be something about the way the regs have gone, the way the tyres are, the way the Red Bull specifically is that make it very hard to extract that performance. You know, The fact that Verstappen is doing it and making it look easy, I think, is a, a testament to his supreme level of skill more than it is, a, as much as it is a testament to how good the Red Bull is. And Perez must be suffering something similar to what Ricardo went through at McLaren in terms of just not being able to consistently find that rhythm with the car because of some of the, the cues that it gives you maybe being a bit strange. Yeah, I think the thing when you've got somebody of, of Max's sort of towering ability is he has a lot of mental capacity left to just reprogram what's necessary. If the you know the suspension traits require a different approach to braking into slow corners, which I'm sure it does, or a different way of using the tires. It's the sort of thing you would imagine. Max goes into a simulator and has got sorted out within half an hour, and just says, "All oh, right, okay, I've got to do it like this way now." Whereas others who are just driving on instinct and just driving the way they always have, without necessarily understanding what they're doing, just know that it, it works. Um, they might have a, a bit of difficulty sort of um, decoupling that, you know, and, and, and sort of breaking it down and rebuilding it back up again. And I think that's definitely what Ricardo struggled with. At McLaren, I don't think he would have struggled so much with that at Red Bull, or the, the Red Bulls that were there at the time. But um, maybe in this car with the the extreme, the way that the, uh, the, the anti-dive and the anti-squat suspension is set up, I'm sure that ha- does have implications on the feel of the brake pedal and how you have to manipulate it and how you, you, you approach those those kind of corners. Yeah. This is also why it's going to be interesting to see how Ricardo gets on. Now he's in another of the these uh, these new generation Formula One cars in the AlphaTauri. Obviously, the AlphaTauri is a very different car, despite there's some commonality of parts. But we will see kind of how much of that was McLaren specific and how much of it was maybe to the specific, to the generic rather, demands of, of this generation of cars. So uh, I'm sure we be plenty to talk about that one in the future. Well, well, let's get on to the opposition because McLaren's recent re-emergence means that four different teams have had moments as Red Bull's best challenger now this season, Aston Martin, Mercedes and Ferrari being the others. But why has one of them not been able to consistently lead that charge? They all have different strengths and weaknesses relative to each other and at different track layouts and different tyre demands will favour and disfavour each of them in a different way. Um, this this is true even of the Red Bull, it will be, but because it's got such a big overall margin on everyone, it doesn't really show. It's always the fastest, even at its worst tracks. Its, it's margin just fluctuates a bit. 
So in terms of why none of the chasing teams has established itself, it's simply because they're each at a similar overall level, but they are optimised around slightly different drag and downforce trade-offs. Uh, Ferrari's quite low in drag, has nice slow corner rotation, but it's got very on-off downforce at the rear at high speeds, very sensitive to running in traffic. Its aerodynamics seem a little too sensitive, even if in pure pace and perfect conditions, they're probably the fastest after Red Bull. Uh, the Aston's got good downforce, but more drag than a Ferrari. And if the spread of corner speeds of a track's big, it can struggle to bridge that gap. The Merck's got good tyre usage and a good front end, so the drivers can really lean on it. But it's got a shortfall of rear grip and traction. It's also a bit draggy. McLaren's terrific in high speed, poor in low speed. McLaren switches on its tyre as well. The Merck doesn't, etc. So... You know, any given track or any different track temperature or surface, you can see how they will just completely switch the order, just like, a, you know, symbols on a fruit machine, uh, according to the circumstances. And bottom line is none of them has got the Red Bull's aero efficiency. And with that advantage, you gain great flexibility in your setup. And with its softer suspension, you can be timed at the tyres and use more kerb, as Ben was talking about. So it's a win-win, uh, and they haven't stopped win-winning all season. Yeah, you really can't disassociate the weaknesses of the others from the strengths of the Red Bull, and it is an all-round car. And I think that's always an important thing to, to say. I mean, you, as you said, the Red Bull has its own strengths and weaknesses, which is why we still do hear you know, Verstappen talking about problems and the areas they need to keep working at. But because they're always that top line, they never really show up in the same way, whereas the others, you can sort of see those those big differences. But it's, uh, yeah, it, it, it's concerning that still a year and a half in, we're at this point where there's certain tracks where you think, well, that team's going to be much stronger, this team's going to be much stronger, but it's going to be, you know, major architectural changes and, and that kind of thing that are going to give them even the potential to do it. But ben, if you if you look at that group of teams... Which one do you think is the best placed to actually topple Red Bull long time? The reason I ask that is partly we had a question that was sort of related to this, this about drivers in our uh, post-British uh, Grand Prix podcast. And it's actually quite difficult to answer because I think during those Mercedes years, despite Ferrari's moments, Red Bull was always the sleeping giant, wasn't it? It was always the one we were just expecting to get there. Mm. I find it difficult to point to any of these ones and make a completely compelling case that Team X is better on a better trajectory than Team Y. So can you decipher it a little bit more clearly? It's tricky. It, it feels, from what Mark was saying, almost like you need a, a kind of Marvel cinematic universe type situation where each of those cars comes together to form some kind of supercar that can take on the massive evil giant of Red Bull that's just dominating and crushing everybody. I think if you try to break them down and look at which team potentially has the best chance of minimising those weaknesses and also perhaps has the best spread of performance across the tracks on average so far I think probably Mercedes are in slightly better position than everyone else that the concept shift they're kind of they've got that underway now haven't they they've made they've made one big step in that direction finally they were slow to do it but they've done it now and then you would expect this winter or the second half of this year as they start you know, uh, as early as possible switching focus to next season really making the most of that change if they've understood everything properly and if this is the big if their simulations are corrected or their understanding of them is corrected so that they don't lead themselves down the wrong garden path again I think the fact that they've got that ability to look after the tyres so well two really strong drivers they're scoring points consistently they're there in most races I think the drag and air efficiency question goes back again a bit to the engine. You know, they've I think they've got left behind a little bit on the the engine side of things now, whereas they were, you know, dominant before. And I think this is where Red Bull was so strong in the years where they were not winning regularly and griping about Renault and the fact that Mercedes had this enormous engine advantage. Obviously, Red Bull's aerodynamicists and engineering teams had to work really, really hard to extract efficiency from the chassis to make up for the fact that they didn't have the power. And I think they're, that's paid them back now because they've got uh, in the Honda engine something that's equal or, as Mark said, maybe better than the rest. So therefore, you can start being more flexible without losing the discipline that you developed in the years that you had a deficit, whereas Mercedes have got the reverse problem. 
they always had a power advantage. They didn't have to work quite so hard on the aero side to to punch a hole through the air. And now they do. And I think that's probably why they're suddenly in this... We've never used to describe the Mercedes as a draggy car, but the last two years we have. And that will obviously be to do with other things that Mark t- touched on about, you know, the floor concept and how how you set the car in terms of its ride height to make the most of its aerodynamics. And they obviously can't, couldn't previously get it into the right window or low enough to access that downforce. So they run it higher, so therefore it's draggier. But I do think the engine plays a role. They won't be able to necessarily correct that engine question until the rules change. But I think the other things are more within their grasp. Ferrari, you would have said, were they were the biggest challenger to Red Bull at the start of the rules. But we've seen this a couple of times in the hybrid era when there's been a big rule set change. Ferrari are hot on the case at the start. They come up with a very interesting, different concept that is very quick. You know, 2017, they had the best car for a long time when the rules changed and then everybody caught up. Start of 22, they had the fastest car. But as ever, they just don't seem to really know where to go with it. They get lost. Even last year when the team was relatively stable off track, they weren't really bringing much to it. You know, Bonotto admitted they didn't really know how to develop it, even if they had managed to free up the cash from the cost cap uh, to do it. And now they just seem more down that path of being lost with all the upheaval that's gone on behind the scenes. I imagine, you know, things aren't working that well in terms of the smoothness of the behind the scenes operations and the confidence the team has to to dig itself out of a hole. They seem to have consciously made an effort to reduce drag on the car, but that's caused other problems now. And the car seems overall weaker than it was last year. Certainly no better off in qualifying. And then the other teams, well, yeah, Aston have made obviously the biggest step, but they were the first to make a huge conceptual shift. You know, they talked about having two ideas at the start of the rules, making that big change in Barcelona, then working through the second part of last season to put themselves in the position this year where they can be basically second best more often than not. But it's it's one thing to have done that. They're not a team that are used to competing with the big guns race after race. So can they build on what they have now and turn it into a car that isn't basically a hugely draggy thing that's really good on the slow tracks but not really any good anywhere else? Almost the polar opposite of a Williams. I'm not sure. You know, if out of the the obvious examples, they're probably the team that you look at and say, well, yeah, they're putting the infrastructure in place and there's there's a big push there. Maybe Honda is the missing piece of the puzzle for them, but they've got to wait obviously several seasons before that happens. And then that's another rule change as well. And then you look at McLaren and say, well, they had a brilliant Silverstone and obviously they've restructured and they've done a conceptual shift at the start of this season. So that's good on them, but it's one race. They've had one really good race out of however many terrible ones going back the last 18 months. So let's not get too excited about them. Uh, and that just then, again, brings me back to um, Mercedes. They seem, although they're much less than they were under these rules, they seem more likely than the rest, I think, to get their act together. Yeah, I think we'll probably see uh, in Hungary in the coming weekend, McLaren struggling a little bit more because that plays more to their uh, weaknesses. But it, it it is interesting, isn't it, Mark? Because there's none of those group of teams that have yet ticked all the boxes in showing that they are you know, certainly on the right track with everything. You could sort of in some way say that maybe Aston Martin's the most encouraging because they're probably the closest on concept. And you could say, well, maybe with a step with the floor, change a bit on the rear suspension, they might be able to get there. But then again, this is also a team that's still very much on the way up. Their own wind tunnel won't be online until uh, until next year. Obviously, they're still sharing the Mercedes one, which is fine, but there are some limitations to being in a, in a wind tunnel share. So it sort of all points to the fact that it feels like we're going to have quite a bit more of this Red Bull supremacy. I know things could change significantly next year, but it would be a surprise if we weren't once again looking at Red Bull very much as the as the strongest package next season, even if perhaps the the rest should be able to close the gap. Yeah, I think that's right. I think um, in, in, in terms of having all the plates spinning, um, Red Bull has, has got that comfortably covered. It, all the other teams have got some sort of shortfall to find and we're in the very early stages of finding out um, just, you know, how successful they're going to be um, in, in doing that. The, I think in terms of the, the long, you know, medium to long term, which is, which for them it is. Um, yeah. I, I personally, I think it's between Mercedes and, and Aston. I think 
Ferrari has got too many underlying structural problems in the way to run. I think um, McLaren is not yet um, you know, equipped to the level of a, a top team and may be able to challenge now and then, but it, it, in terms of a consistent season-long challenge, I think it, it comes down to Mercedes and Aston, and that's that's a, that's a very interesting contest because you've got a, a new team almost in Aston, a, a, new, a sort of newly created big team anyway that's expanded massively in a very short space of time and is recruited very aggressively full of ambition and you've got a team which has done it all and which has had this strength and depth for years and years and years but has been the victim of um, some of those aggressive recruitments not just by Aston but by everyone in terms in, in including um, Red Bull powertrains for the, um, the, the the engine on the engine side so yeah, you'd say Mercedes. Yeah, they've got the concept wrong, and they've got the the, the stayed with the same concept um, into a second year when it's clear in hindsight they should have um, dumped it after the first year. So you can sort of think, well, you can make a case for them, saying, okay, now that they've recognised that, will we see them um, more as as they we got used to seeing them in terms of uh, you know really. Max, maximizing a set of regulations or is there something structural within now is there some weakness within now which has led to this and which will play out in a different way next year so i think that's the interesting one it's it's, it's that comparison between aston and mercedes if we're if we're looking at red bull's future challenges i think a lot depends also on whether mercedes can maintain its confidence in itself amid all the batterings it had i think you can look at 20 22 and particularly the run at the end of the season and the the one two in brazil as a almost something that misled them into thinking oh actually we we can get more out of this we're on the right path when they were wavering and you can look at that as a mistake and in hindsight it was in terms of the concept being wrong but you could also say well they extracted quite a lot from what was the wrong concept and more than maybe they thought they could at an earlier stage in the season so there's definitely bits about that team in terms of the way it digs deep and finds performance from what, what it has that are still very, very strong elite, in fact. So I don't think they're going to go away, providing that they can stay the course and not not be blinded to the fact that sometimes there are better solutions out there. They just need to do... They're behind in R&D, aren't they? They've spent too long going down the wrong tunnel and they've now come out of it and they've got to to search for answers that they needed 18 months ago. And of course, Red Bull already had those answers. So they're 18 months further ahead in terms of understanding. But at some point, you know, Red Bull is going to plateau under every set of rules. There's limits to how much gain you can find in playing a concept. And, you know, Mercedes had this in the last set of rules, didn't they? They had to dig really deep after 2019 when Ferrari's engine was a bit too powerful did an amazing job with the 20 car, but they had nothing left after that, really. Whereas Red Bull, who messed around a bit more, were still finding, you know, gains from what they were doing. So I'd imagine as we get towards 26, things will look slightly different because some of these teams who are behind will inevitably, once their understanding develops and if it develops, catch up. Helped, obviously, by the fact that the rules are now biased in a way that assists you if you've got a deficit because you get more wind tunnel time or research time than the team that's leading. So I hate to be in a situation where we get to 2025 and actually Formula One is mega again, and then they're just going to throw everything out by changing changing the rules again. Um, but for some teams, that that will be the, the target. 26, like Aston, I feel like you know they've re- they recognise that being a works team, having an engine partner, is a big weakness for them at present. So Honda coming on board with them is is probably the point at which they feel they can make the final step and become a properly properly elite team and there will be hope that Red Bull suffers a reversal because they were clearly irritated to lose Honda and now they're doing their own thing and all credit to them I mean Mark you've seen the facility you know what they what they've been building up but it's not an easy thing to do from scratch and they'll be going up against a load of teams who've got experience and lots of experience in this area i.e designing a you know, redesigning a power unit on, on, around a very different set of regulations. So everyone will be thinking about that. And you'd imagine that's a good opportunity for the likes of Mercedes and Ferrari to hit back and a big test for Red Bull, even though obviously it's done aggressive recruitment, 
to actually hit the ground running there. There's no guarantees, I don't think. The encouraging thing is that compared to where we might have been five, six years ago, there's a lot more teams that we can talk about realistically as emerging as challengers. So that massively improves the odds of, of that happening. And hopefully we can have a multi-car team fight at the front in which Red Bull, I'm sure, would still do very, very well. But it would be great to see that down the line. We'll get back to the pod in a moment. But first, a word about our partner, Grammarly. No matter what kind of work you do, how you communicate is key. All those emails, reports and presentations are equally important to the collaboration needed to get things done. And Grammarly can help. Grammarly is your AI writing partner to help you communicate more effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact at work. I know from experience that Grammarly can help you save time on any writing task and ensure you feel confident about what you've produced. In fact, 96% of Grammarly's users report that Grammarly helps them craft more impactful writing, and their tone suggestions can help you navigate even the most difficult work conversations. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Sign up and download for free at grammarly.com forward slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said done. Well, Mark, as mentioned, you have had a look around the Red Bull powertrains facility recently before the British Grand Prix. There's obviously been a lot of talk about the 26 regulation, particularly with the power units. Christian Horn has been very vocal about whether those rules are right. How confident should we be about Red Bull heading into that new era with its uh, its engine backed by Ford? Uh, cautious, because it is all new for everyone. Um, but one of the intentions of the 26 power unit rule set has been not to make it so complex that there are built-in challenges which take years to understand, which which was the case with these ones and the years H in particular. And that's what caught Honda out in its McLaren years. And that's what caught Ferrari and Renault out in, it, in the first year as well, the first year of the, the, the formula. So hopefully this time everyone can get to a similar level in quite short order. But that said, just, just because powertrains is a startup operation and it, it represents a huge leap from just being a team. I don't think we should consider it the underdog because the the expertise it's hired in is immense. And not only is there a lot of experience already within those people, even though it's never been branded under the same um, heading before, there are still an immense number of people there that have been through all this before and and will understand the challenges. Um, But the other thing is that in its aggressive recruitment, not only is it, it bought itself this um, this new expertise, but it's damaged the others, especially Mercedes. About I'd say about sixty percent of the engineers there are, are ex bricks with. Um, so you know, I think there's a there's a double hit there. Um, so in terms of the ERS technology with these new massive batteries, that might well be the new battleground rather than the the engine. Um, that and, and probably fuel technology as well with the new sustainable fuel technology in its infancy. So um, that might be where we see the differentiators. Um, but Red Bull, they've not, not gone into this half-heartedly. The, the facility is immense. It's you know it's probably 30% bigger than Bricksworth. And of course, it's kitted out with the absolute latest technology in, in everything, you know, from dinos all the way down. So, um, yeah, I, I don't... I don't Say that they're definitely going to be, you know, the, the, the come up with the best engine or the best the best power unit combination. But I, I'd be surprised if they were not competitive. And I'd, I'd I'm hopeful that all all of the suppliers would be at a similar level within quite a short um, period of time, unlike last time. But that perhaps, uh, if it plays out that way, means Mercedes are less likely to emerge the biggest contender and it probably favours Aston slightly because I would feel like Honda are more more likely to be whole in terms of approaching this new rule set than Mercedes are and maybe so maybe the battery and the fuel element is the big differentiator there was an element of that at the start of the hybrid era wasn't there I remember Renault saying that they tried to focus so much on the the energy recovery system that they neglected the combustion element and of course by that stage you had fuel flow limitations and 
energy limits. And so combustion actually became really important. You had to redesign in a quite fundamental way how you did that. And they, it took them years to get into a decent position. So a complex challenge, hopefully, because if if Red Bull are just in this mighty position where they've built, you know, not only the most consistently impressive chassis team, they've also got now got the, the best state-of-the-art engine facility in the country and all the best people. There's no hope for anyone, even under a rule change, is there? You know, they've certainly uh, gone massively uh, aggressive with it, as you have to be. You know, you really have to commit if you're going to do this. But it's still a new entity and has to gel and come together. So it's interesting to see if it is uh, the sum of its parts or less or more, etc. So a big challenge. But it does show how seismic 2026 is going to be because we have got these uh, these shifts in in uh, in the power unit. So even if you've got continuity of your of your engine side it's going to be a, a different uh, a different package completely and then you've got obviously Audi's turning up with uh, with Sauber Honda going with Aston lots of things shifting around so it does create enormous potential for there to be uh, to be changes and the fact that there's still a little bit of behind the scenes wrangling going on about the regs is obviously uh, quite telling it shows that this is still very much a live issue one outfit we haven't mentioned at all in any of this discussion it's just occurred to me is alpine and renault you know this is meant to be a works operation and yet we haven't discussed them as even in the conversation as a potential challenger either now or in 2026 so why is that well i've been saying that they were going to be this you know with since oh probably at least 20 2018 2017-18 as they you know, rebuilt the the team which had suffered such a, a starvation of investment when when Renault didn't own it, and it's it's always been the next the next step. The next step's going to take us across the line. It's going to make us into a top team. And you know, you you, you get you get um, sort of inured of, of hearing about it. And every every year, it's it's it's, it's much the same. There, there are. The promising little shoots, and then they go back down again, and it's a sort of flat line, really, hasn't it? So it's it would be great to see it happen, um, to to see another team, you know, get in that mix. But I haven't seen anything that that gives you much confidence or faith, really. And it would it would really an act of faith to to say, you know, I think uh, that the Enstone team will will reestablish itself near the front again soon. I I, I don't see any anything to, to back that up. Is there a pattern to their relative drop-off this season? Because last season, from afar, it looked like actually they did a pretty decent job under the new rules and developed quite well. You know, there were several races where they were battling near the front, battling with Mercedes, looked pretty even on pace. But this year, they don't really look like they're in the same picture. No, they were just um, sort of hanging off the back of that best-of-the-rest group. Um, But they've just stayed there. And then McLaren has sort of leapfrogged past them and... Yeah, that, that's it's. There's, Aston too. Well, yeah, Aston started it well ahead, yeah. but um, you know, yeah. McLaren started the season behind them, and um, so yeah, there's, yeah, there's two places down the, the back down of the midfield again. They've also left points on the table as well. I don't think that would have fundamentally changed their destiny in the constructors' championship, but it would have meant McLaren would have taken a little bit longer to uh, to overhaul them, which they basically did in in two bounds in Austria and and Silverstone. But it, it, it's difficult with Alpine because it feels like a team that's always three years away from being somewhere, and there's always been that slight feeling that Renault's just tried to do it that fraction bit on the cheap you know they're still talking about infrastructure stuff when I spoke to Otmar now a few episodes ago he was saying well they've got their driver and loop simulator that new one coming and that'll take a few years to do they've got little bits and pieces they need to do with a wind tunnel and that kind of thing so it just always feels like it's that half step behind and when you compare it to what Aston Martin's done with Lawrence Stroll which is effectively that they've pretty much had a moonshot it's like right this is what we want to do this is what we need to spend this is all the stuff we need to do and they've absolutely gone at it and they've managed to make up that ground much more quickly so I almost feel like Alpine is just perennially this team with a lot of potential but there's always that slight edge of oh we're going to try and out efficient everyone which just doesn't work because all teams try to be as efficient as possible and if you're massively efficient but you're just doing a little bit more and you've got a little bit more you will be better. And what about 2026 then? Because obviously that's been a big part of this discussion. And if 
Renault, let's say, are trying to push the F1 team a little bit more to arm's length, let it fund itself. You know, they've got investment coming in from Hollywood, which was much publicised. Um, and, you know, Laurent Rossi said that was about partly reinvesting into the operation. Are Renault actually going to go all out for the 2026 engine rules or are they going to get left behind by these other manufacturers, some of which are coming in fresh, who are just more motivated and, and more engaged? They should be okay in that regard because there's a there's an engine development cost cap which they're meant to be spending at. So they should be able to do it, I think. I'm a little bit more concerned about the team side because actually the engine did take a, a finally take the step it needed to when they did the, the upgrade for the start of the engine freeze era last year. So I'm less concerned about the power unit side and a bit more concerned about the, the, the endstone side. But they have got very good people there as well. So... You know they're not a bad team. It's just can they get into that that next echelon? That's the real challenge. And I think until we see a clear step in that direction, it becomes a bit of a repetitive discussion. Because as Mark <laughs> said at the start of this section, we've been talking about it for some time. Uh, one thing we should briefly talk about, Ben, is that one of the more curious storylines this season is Max Verstappen's future beyond the end of his current contract, and the suggestions of retirement have been bouncing around. Now his contract runs to twenty twenty eight, which so far away really it might as well be 20 years away (laughs) so what do you think all of that is about is it does it reflect Verstappen's own position is it as George Russell suggested all just some very 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 far out uh, gambit to get a little bit more money yeah that's interesting that I think he sort of said it in jest but with a serious edge underlying didn't he to be honest the way he said it he seemed dead straight I was in the room when he did it Uh, uh, there was no indication (laughs) maybe he's a brilliant comedian then (laughs) well yeah it it wasn't even I think it was just an honest answer he gave to the question he was asked just fair enough probably probably wasn't expecting it and just gave the answer because you know all drivers do that in some way shape or form the only thing with Verstappen that would make it odd is I presume he's not doing much contractual wrangling behind the scenes at this time it would more apply to someone whose contract's kind of 18 months out yeah maybe although you know he might he might be looking at it from the perspective of I've signed this massive deal but at the time I signed it I was expecting to do X amount of work and now you're saying to me, we're going to have more races, different formats, this much more demand here, there and everywhere. Therefore, I think I want a bit more than the deal I signed. I wouldn't put that past the Verstappens. You know, they've they've been really shrewd in the way Max's career has been managed all the way through and they've called the shots with Red Bull, let's face it, right from the start. And I imagine even with a contract that runs, as you say, to 2028, there will be many clauses within that that allow him to wriggle his way out should he choose. So I could imagine him setting his stall out now, thinking, well, actually, yeah, I've got 28, but maybe for 25 or 6, I want to renegotiate elements. Thank you very much. Um, I do think there's a... Max is a straightforward guy, and I think there are elements of where Formula 1's headed that he genuinely doesn't like. You know, he's quite old school. He likes the qualifying race you know, Formula One that we all know for many decades. He doesn't really enjoy this slightly Formula 2-esque mixed up sprint format weekend. Sees it as gimmicks, I think. Um, So regardless of the fact he's dominating now and obviously enjoying winning, um, I think it's a good way for him to signal his kind of displeasure, displeasure with the direction of Formula One becoming more kind of sports entertainment rather than pure sport. Um, but he was he was quite specific, wasn't he, about twenty twenty six? You know, there's a it's interest. It's easy to dismiss the the Red Bull twenty twenty six angst as a kind of politicking about the rules and trying to lobby to get things changed in a way that favours them. Obviously, when they're going to the project, you know, new. But Verstappen made specific points about how he felt that rule change would impact on the driving of the cars and also the racing you know he thought the racing would be worse he thought the the braking distances wouldn't work properly he thought it would become an engine formula again which he didn't like the cars are going to get heavier again still and everyone's been complaining for a long time that they're too heavy so you know maybe he's looking at it and thinking well yeah I'm signed till 28 but do I really want to stick around that long you know he a lot of drivers who are successful say they're not about padding the stats and breaking the records and I, he falls, you know, kind of stereotypically into that category, but it must be on his mind. But but he also genuinely seems to want to do other things with his racing career. You know, he's talked a lot about sports car racing. And we know he likes racing with his mates online. So I could I could well believe 
that he's being genuine and saying, you know what, Formula One's fine. But I've, I've, his big thing was becoming a world champion. He's done that. It's almost like, well, what's another? What's another? You know, to him, it he seems to be mold moving more into the phase of this is a job to me, and I want to enjoy my job. You know, he's mentioned about work-life balance as before in press conferences as well, hasn't he? You know, having this kind of awareness that yes, Formula One is a dream, but it does come with consequences. And I think he's acutely aware that he doesn't need because of how successful he's been so young and how much money he's undoubtedly been able to earn and not have to give away to other organisations who funded his career up to that point that, you know, maybe he doesn't need to do Formula One and flog his guts out for 25, 26 races a year and do all that travelling and all that PR and sponsorship. He can go and race for fun or, you know, race for a bit less wedge in other categories that he quite enjoys. Well, we're also fortunate enough to have the author of what is called the ultimate biography of Max Verstappen with us in Mark Hughes. That's a book that's coming out in September. Good plug there for you, Mark, which actually you. you haven't asked for, but I thought, <laughs> I thought given it's the ultimate biography, it was worth mentioning for your credentials. What, what do you make of Verstappen's just view of the long term of Formula One and, and his future? I think Ben's right about his disillusionment with the direction of Formula One, not just technically the way the cars are going, but the sort of the social media age way that it's developed and he he really is old school and he he just doesn't enjoy it and there was a there was a moment in a press conference at Miami where a, a particularly vacuous question was asked it, it just insubstantial nothing to do with racing and you briefly saw in his face the look of just oh I've had enough of this shit and he just pulled himself <laughs> together and then gave her a suitably bland answer. But every one of those just takes a bit more out of him, a bit more energy, a bit more of enjoyment out of what he's doing. And it, it accumulates. And I, if I had to speculate and guess, um, I think he'll run till the end of this, um, this formula. So uh, to the end of 25. I don't think I don't think the eighth world world title is going to be a thing for him. I, I think the, the the winning the winning the title was all all that was targeted, and I think you'll go at the end of this this current formula and probably probably stop. He probably I I don't believe he'll even go at the end of his contract. Um, just it's too long, and I, he, he's showing too much dissatisfaction, really, to to to, to imagine that he would he'd go that long. Um, I think he'll, yeah, he'll end up doing, you know, a bit of sports car racing, a bit of rallying, a bit of, bit of this, bit of that, and, you know, just have a nice life. He'll be 28, 29 by then. Perfect, perfect time to stop. And it, it's not about money. He's got more money than God already. It, it, it's just, no, I, th- I, I really, th- I think it's genuine. I think he's being 100% straight when he says these things. I think that's, he's just saying what he thinks because he's been asked. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think he is being direct and honest. Well, good. I'm glad, I'm glad that my answer wasn't just a load of nonsense. I think he sounds to me a bit like Kimmy, you know, um, and probably could take a leaf out of Kimmy's book in terms of, you know, deflecting some of the vacuous stuff. But there's so much more of it these days, isn't there? You know, when Kimmy was on the rise in Formula One, social media wasn't really a thing and now it's everywhere. And there's, you know, people wanting a piece of you from all sorts of angles. And like Mark says, it does take a toll. Um, exasperating for Max. So maybe, you know, even if he's not completely done with Formula One at the end of this rule set or doesn't see out his contract, maybe the break will do him good and he'll want to come back after that. He'll be plenty young enough to do it. You know, even Fernando's been able to do it after, you know, leaving for a bit. Um, so the, the, he might he might see Formula One differently from the outside once he spent a bit of time out of it. But I think, you know, unlike Lewis, who always, who now says he, he, wanted several times to take a break but always feared getting left behind if he did I think the fact Alonso's done it and come back so strongly I think Max could easily do that and of course you know going back to your original question Ed yes there's a contract in place till 28 but Max Verstappen's like you know Senna was like Prost was you know one of these guys he calls the shots you know he's he's the best driver on the grid basically and he can decide whether or not he races. It's not really down to his contract. And even if he had to pay Red Bull some money back to break it, he would do it, I think, if he was so inclined. 
Yeah, exactly. Well, he's very single-minded and, yeah, as you say, he is an absolutely stunningly brilliant driver. So uh, I think from that perspective, it'd be nice to see him keep keep going in Formula 1 for a long time. That said, I do love it when drivers go and do other things and it would be great to see him go and win Le Mans and do some yeah. of these other things that, that you know, there's, there's so many challenges out there in the world of motorsport. I like the fact that he embraces those. Well, thanks very much, Ben and Mark, for your insight. Head to the race.com and don't forget the hyphen. Plenty to read there. Check out some of our other podcasts, including the Race F1 Tech Show with Gary Ann. Anderson, bring back V10s, which tells historic F1 stories, and also have a look at our YouTube channel, both for long and short form videos. Well, the Hungarian Grand Prix is coming up, so stay with us for everything you need to know for the world of Formula One. The Athletic. <laughs> 